Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we have a very special episode. We'll be speaking with Pastor Jason Halopoulos about his new book entitled Covenantal Baptism. Now, let's talk with Pastor Halopoulos. Pastor Jason, thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. Well, love being with Westminster, love being with you, James, so appreciate you having me. Well, you've written another great book, this one entitled Covenantal Baptism, and we're very excited to talk to you about it today. And I believe it's published with PNR, is that right? It is, yeah. It's uh, part of a series that we're starting. Can you tell me a little bit about the series? Yeah, would. We're calling it Blessings of the Faith, so it will be a series of books. There'll be at least 10 books in the series. I'm hoping even more than that. But the whole idea is to help people that are new to Presbyterianism, to our ecclesiology, to our understanding of what the Scriptures teach in that realm, to give them an introduction, and then also just take some of these things and press them home for people that are already thoroughgoing Reformed Presbyterians to help understand how some of these things go together and just to do it in an applicable way. There are three books that are coming out right here at the beginning. I've written this one on baptism, as you mentioned. David Strain, who's pastor at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi, has written one on preaching. And then Guy Richard, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, has written one on prayer. And we have another three or four that are in the works that uh, I am hoping will be rolled out here within the next year. But it's very exciting. I think it could be really helpful for new members' classes, for small group Bible studies. One of the things I'm most excited about this series is what we've done at the end of all of these books is the whole last and the biggest section of each book is just question and answers. So it's a question with a short answer, question, short answer on that topic. So it just could be really helpful, I think, for people that are looking for brief answers to, ah, you know, How do you listen to a sermon in David's book? Or how do I prepare for a sermon? Or what is good preaching? Or, you know, my baptism book, you know, what about these arguments for immersion? Or, you know, why would we consider a child a a member of the covenant family? I mean, just quick kind of brief answers. So that's awesome. You're not going to tell us the other books in the series, are you? This this would be the perfect time. Uh, This would be a great time, but I can't do that yet. But I hope to. Uh, There are more coming, and very excited about the authors that we have lined up to do some of these. That sounds so great. I mean, it's an awesome series, and what a strong opening with those three topics and those three men writing on them. It's exciting. So let's talk about baptism. This is a fun one. This one is uh, controversial for a lot of people and also so incredibly important. Can you sort of map the territory of the different views of, of what baptism is? Yeah, we could. I think the easiest way for us to approach baptism is to back it up to the sacraments in general and say, you know, historically we would have something like a Roman Catholic view, and then we would have a Lutheran view and what has been called the Zwinglian view, and then, you know, what has been a robustly historical Presbyterian view. And that's that's how I approach it when I teach it uh, people here at University Reformed Church, I I would say, you know, we have a new members class every semester and, you know, probably 25, 30 people in a class a semester, and I bet 
60-70% of them are not coming from a Presbyterian background. So that's usually how I walk through it, is explain that there have been different historical views on the sacraments, and then that allows us, as we look at the Lord's table, to then explore that as well with baptism. But that is usually how I would break it down and, and think through it together. Yeah, that's super helpful. Well, could you walk us through what the implications of those views of the sacraments are for how you think about baptism? Yeah. I think if we if we take primarily the ones that are maybe in our sphere with baptism, so let's take a Zwinglian view, especially, you know, what has been attributed to kind of the the Zwinglian framework, but you know, would not have been something obviously Zwingli held to, but is where we would put most Baptists at, those in the Anabaptist tradition, in the free tradition, uh, would kind of fall into that category. And let's compare that to a Reformed Presbyterian understanding of baptism. You know, is that we will root baptism in our understanding of the unfolding of the scriptures and our understanding of how the scriptures are organized and how God has chosen to reveal himself. And he's revealed himself as a covenant-keeping God to his covenant people. And he's established a covenant with his people. And so there is one people of God and there is one way of salvation. And as we explore that and see that unfolded in the scriptures, this covenant that God has entered into with his people, uh, there is a great deal of continuity then across the scriptures where we see this unfolding plan of God that manifests itself ultimately in the promised Savior that we have all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The implications for that are great. So if there is more continuity... We all believe there's discontinuity, and we all believe there's continuity as evangelical Protestants. But if we believe there is more continuity than discontinuity, then that that influences how we understand the promises that God has made to his covenant people and who is included in the number of those covenant people. And so as we walk through that, we see that children, for instance, in the Abrahamic covenant are included as members of the covenant community. When Peter is... You know, at the very moment where the Spirit is being poured out, and you could say it is the New Covenant community is erupting upon the scene there as the Spirit is being poured out, is there that he reiterates those covenant promises, that this is a promise for you and for your children. When Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus or Colossae, and you get to those household passages in both of those books, he's writing and he writes to children of covenant families. And at the very beginning of each of those books, it's very interesting that he addresses those books to the saints, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae, those who are set apart. And we could go on. So when you begin to see the scriptures as maintaining that continuity throughout, and you see this covenant of grace being unfolded throughout the scriptures, and you understand that there are one people of God, and that children were included in this one people of God, the covenant community, in the beginning, and then you begin to see some of the evidence of this later, and it's never repealed, then it affects our view of who the sacraments, who should receive the sacraments, and in particular, the sacrament of initiation. So, the sacrament of initiation into the covenant people of God in the New Testament age, of course, as we all agree, baptism. And because we believe in this continuity and that children were included in the covenant before, then they should be included now. They are included now and should receive that same sign. Whereas a 
Baptists or Anabaptists, uh, more holding to that Zwinglian tradition, would not understand there to be continuity as the main overarching theme, but discontinuity. And so some of those promises are not intended for children, and they would understand that the sign should not be applied to them because of that. Yeah, that's so hard. And also, I think to say in another way what you just said, if God's covenant was going to change so much that now children weren't included, then you would expect that to be extremely clear and, and stated explicitly by the apostles. It, it would be shocking to the system of Jewish parents to think at this moment, this is actually good news. The gospel is good news. But all of a sudden, if children have moved from being members of the covenant community to now they're no longer members of the covenant community, that is, that is not good news. Now, we're not saying that children of believers are necessarily saved, right? They're both Isaac and Ishmael's, but rather that they are members of the visible church. And as members of the visible church, they're receiving all the benefits of that, right? That they're in the midst of the covenant people of God. They're hearing the word. They're being prayed for. Christ's likeness is being modeled before them. So all of these things are signified to them in those waters of baptism. That, look, you have all these benefits. And to borrow from Luther, who meant it a little differently, but that, that baptism calls out to them for the rest of their lives, believe, 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 right? You've been marked by this. You've had all the benefits of this covenant community. Now believe, believe, believe. And we all even a Baptist, in, in some degree, recognizes that their children are different from the children of the secular family that lives across the street, the unbelieving family. Because we all teach our children to pray. We all teach our children to sing to Christ. So we all know that they're set apart in some different way. And, and I think Reformed Presbyterianism brings home the truth of that in the greatest measure by saying, yes, they're members of the covenant people of God. They're members of the visible church. So therefore, they receive the sign of being members of that visible church. And I think it's helpful to have in mind that distinction between the visible and invisible church of God, which is, as you were saying, that by baptizing children, you're not saving them. Baptism doesn't bring salvation not saying that it's guaranteed that they're united to Christ, but instead we're giving them the sign and the seal of the covenant promises so that now they're part of the visible church, but they may not be part of the invisible church. Can you break that down further? Yeah, so you and I, we can never judge, and you know, I serve as a pastor in a church, and we sit down with prospective members that are coming in and making a profession of faith, or people that are transferring into our church and we want to hear, you know, their profession of faith. I never know with a hundred percent certitude that that person is a believer. I'm testing the fruit. I'm listening to the confession and the profession that they've made. But we're we're admitting them into membership of the church, and what are we admitting them into membership of? Well, it's the visible church. It's what we can see. So what I can see with my own eyes. What I don't know with 100% certitude is, are they part of the invisible church? That which will be with Christ in glory 
forever and ever. That I don't know with certitude. Now, it's part of my my calling to help test that and to help press in where, but we don't know that completely. And having that understanding where you understand that within the visible church, there can be both wheat and tares is incredibly helpful in a lot of different ways. But one of them is to help us not to not to think that we have decreed that this person is eternally saved because we've admitted them in, but we keep pressing in and we keep reminding each other of the need to seize upon the gospel and walk in gospel truth and continue to chase after Christ even as he holds us to himself. But there are a lot of implications of that. One of them is that we keep encouraging our children to keep pursuing Christ and believe upon him and to walk in that which they've been taught, that Just by being members of this visible church doesn't necessarily mean that they're members of the invisible church. And so we keep encouraging them to make sure that truly they are in Christ and that they have believed upon him and trusted in him uh, as their Savior. Yeah. And of course, it reminds me that in the Old Testament, not everyone who was in Israel was part of Israel spiritually. So that distinction goes all the way back into the Old Testament, and you even see Paul using it in passages like Romans 9. Well, okay, that's helpful. What if someone says, well, if kids can be baptized as infants, why can't they take communion? Yeah, and this is because of the distinction in in the sacraments, right? The sacrament of baptism is a sacrament of initiation into the covenant community. That's why it's done once. We don't redo baptism because it is a sign of your entrance, right, among other things. The sacrament of the Lord's table is to be done regularly. And why is that? Because it's nourishment, it's food for the soul as we continue along the journey. It is for those that have professed faith in Christ. And Paul makes this point, right, in 1 Corinthians where He's walking through the table, and he says that some of you have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that some of them have literally died. And why have they died? Well, the reason is, as he says, they have not rightly discerned the body. That is, that when they've come to the table, they have done so, as Paul says, in an unworthy manner. They weren't, and there's a little bit of you know disagreement over the centuries of interpretation that passages he's speaking about, their discerning of Christ and understanding that this is a distinct thing that they're participating in, the bread and the cup, or is it that they aren't discerning the body and that they're abusing their fellow brothers and sisters when they come to the table and coming in an unworthy manner and not being in fellowship with one another in a right way? And we could discuss which is right for the sake of the argument of, of this podcast. I'll just say either one, as we're talking about children coming to the table, they can't rightly discern either one of those. And so there needs to be where they are at an age where they can truly understand and discern the body, where they can discern that this is different than snack time, or they can discern that, you know what, I am in fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ and not out of accord, and I'm not abusing those relationships. And that's just not something that's possible for a young child or an infant. And so many, as they bring their children to the table, think that they're giving them a benefit. And, and actually, if you're reading First Corinthians you know, as Paul is speaking about, you could actually be doing something that is damaging to them, not helping them in their life. Mm, that's really helpful. 
Okay, so what do you think is the strongest argument for what's often called credo-baptism? Yeah, you know, the strongest arguments for credo-baptism, I think, requires a, a hermeneutic of understanding that there is such a strong discontinuity between the old and the new that when we get to the New Testament and you see the baptisms that are experienced in the New Testament, are all of them are of adult converts to the Christian faith. But that requires a hermeneutic that says that there is an incredible discontinuity. So I don't have to consider whether children were included in this covenant community and should receive the sign. It's, of course, the argument that, yeah, that all my Baptist friends will run to first and foremost. Well, we have evidence of somebody being baptized as an adult. We don't have that of a child. My argument in response is, well, you're making the wrong, you're questioning the wrong thing. None of us disagree with that. We all believe in believers' baptism. I believe if someone comes to saving faith as an adult and was not raised in a Christian home and so never received the sign and seal of being a member of the visible church, that they should be baptized upon profession of faith as an adult. It's the wrong issue that's being discussed. The right question is, is a child that is raised in a covenant home, should they receive the sign? And here's, here's the issue is that the Baptist has, I would argue, less evidence than the Pado-Baptist does in this regard, because they can't point at any example of someone that was raised in a Christian home or raised in a believing home that now is receiving the sacrament of baptism because they didn't receive it as a child. And I think, and I say this humbly, but I say it with confidence that the burden of proof is on our Baptist brothers and sisters because this is how God has always operated with his people, is that children have been included in the covenant community so receive the sign of the covenant community. So the question is not where is the evidence for baptizing a baby in the New Testament? That's the wrong question. The question is where is the evidence that God no longer includes these covenant children as members of the covenant community, and so they don't receive the sign. And a Baptist has no evidence for that position where you can point to a child that's been raised that way. So, of course, all the baptisms we see in the Gospels and Acts are of adults because that no one has been raised in a Christian home. So, everyone is converting, right? And so, they are all receiving this sign as adults, and yet... What's fascinating is still fully one-fourth of all the baptisms that we have in the New Testament are of household baptisms. Now, what does that mean? I don't think any of us completely know, but yet that's a fascinating fact. But all this say, I still think the burden of proof lies upon the Baptist position. Yeah, and you know, in the Old Testament, when you would have like a Gentile be converted to Judaism, they would get circumcised, right? And, and their children, their sons would also be circumcised. And so, in the New Testament, we see cases where someone converts to Christianity, and you have passages that say that they were baptized and their household was baptized. And now, if it, would, if it was different now than it was in the Old Testament, then you'd expect them to say something like, they were baptized and their household was baptized, except their children. 
you know, you would expect that exception to be really clear. And, you know, we just don't see that. Because, again, let's just say it one more time, it would be a dramatic, not small, it would be a dramatic change in the way that God relates to his people. It would be a dramatic change in that covenant relationship and how it's manifested in the covenant community if children were included at one point and they are no longer. It also strikes against the fact that the new covenant age is one that is more inclusive and is even more gracious and even more free. It would all of a sudden become more restrictive and more limiting and less inclusive, which seems to strike against what we see unfolding in the scriptures. So, As I know, m- many families have had this experience. It's happened in my family where you've lost a, a child, either in the womb. How does our theology of children, our theology of, of baptism and what it means to be born into a Christian family, how does that relate to how we think about when babies pass on? Yeah, I think this is this is pastorally, practically one of the greatest blessings of being Presbyterian and Reformed is that we know that God has made a promise not only to us but to our children. And so that he views our children as distinct and his his covenant love is aimed at them. And so I think the Westminster Divines have it right, you know, when they say all elect children dying in infancy, you know, and they understand them to be saved. And this is a a group of men that are facing higher infant mortality than we've even had to contemplate in the 21st century. But I found this practically as as a pastor of great blessing. We, you know, when I have ministered to those that have lost a child is to remind them that, look, you have a covenant keeping God who looks upon your children as as children of those who are his. I mean, you're in covenant relationship with him, and these promises are for them as much as they are for you. There is great surety in that, and there is great encouragement in that. I think that's why David can get up off of his knees. You, know, you have that fascinating account where he's committed this sin with Bathsheba, and part of the discipline of the Lord is this child is is going to die, and he spends the entire night weeping, you know, days weeping and lamenting and fasting and praying to the Lord and beseeching him to save and give life to his child. And then when they come in, the servants come in, it is fascinating that they don't, they're scared. They don't want to let him know that now the child has died. And he senses it, and when he senses it, he asks them, and they confirm that his child has died, and he gets up and he washes himself, he worships God, and he goes about his day. And they ask the question, how can this be? When your son was still alive, you were weeping and you were, you were crying out and you were fasting, and now that he's dead, you're worshiping and you're functioning. And his answer right, as he speaks of in the psalm, is that he he knows that he goes to be with his son, that his son has passed into glory. And where would be the confidence in that? Where does he get such confidence? 
It's because this is a promise for us and for our children. And this is a covenant child who is within the covenant community and has died in infancy. And that child is with the Lord. And David knows that he's going to see his child someday. There is incredible, incredible comfort in knowing that uh, for those that have lost children as, as Christian parents. Amazing. Incredible. And it goes back to the whole point of baptism. The whole point is that ultimately doesn't matter that baby may not have grown old enough to make any sort of decision to follow Jesus because ultimately salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeah, and could there be any better picture of it than when we're holding up an infant in our hands and the parents have that child cradled that that physically can do nothing for itself, right? All it can't feed itself, it can't walk across the room, it can't talk, and we're applying the sign and seal of God's covenant that speaks of a salvation that can only be by grace to this child. And it, it pictures before, I think, all of us, and it's meant to before all of us, the fact that salvation is all of grace, and it is a gift from our sovereign Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Jason. This has been amazing. Everyone should pick up your book, Covenantal Baptism. Covenantal Baptism, yes. Yes. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure to be with you. Join us next time as we talk with Pastor Champ Thornton.